0: Today, we're going to look at what was the most important day in Jerusalem's history up to that point in time. Of course, that is Palm Sunday when Jesus makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem the week before Easter Sunday. Let's read it. It's Matthew chapter 21 and verse 8. It says, Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting. Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! Now when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple, and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple, and overturned the tables of the money-changers, and the seats of those who are selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a robbers den. And the blind and the lame came in to him in the temple and he healed them. Now the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem really is the most important day in the city's history up to that point in history. And most people completely missed the importance. Now that's the thing about most important days. It's easy to overlook their importance. Now on this most important day, Jesus is making his royal entrance into Jerusalem and two different things are going on. His disciples are treating him as the king that he really is and the Jewish leaders are doing something else entirely. Now, while Jesus Jesus is making his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Most of the priests at that moment were actually in the temple because it was the first day of the week. Now, what were they doing in the temple? Well, we know what they were doing in the temple because according to the ancient rabbis, The priests were to be in the temple on the first day of the week reciting Psalm 24. Now, what does Psalm 24 say and why is it important that they're reciting Psalm 24 at the very same time that Jesus is making his entrance into Jerusalem? Let me read Psalm 24, verses 7 through 8. It says this, Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the king. Of glory. So the people in the streets and the priest in the temple were asking the same question at the same time Who is this king? Now, many of the people said, Well, this is Jesus. And the answer, according to Psalm 24, is This is the king, the Lord Almighty. Now On this most important day most everyone missed the connection between what psalm 24 was saying and the fact that jesus was making his entrance into jerusalem at the same exact moment psalm 24 is actually a psalm about god making his royal entrance into the city of jerusalem most scholars think that psalm 24 was written And King David brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was that sacred golden chest that represented the presence of God with His people. If you remember, it was fashioned in the days of Moses according to Exodus chapter 25. Inside it were the two tablets of the Ten Commandments, God's covenant with His people. On top of this golden chest was... The mercy seat, where the high priest would sprinkle uh, the blood of the covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant actually oftentimes brought God's people victory in battle as they carried it in battle. If you remember, it was the Ark of the Covenant they carried across the river in Jordan and stopped the flow of the river. And they carried the Ark. And when the walls of Jericho came tumbling down, it was the power and the presence of God. Now, when they, uh, the Israelites actually came to a place their, where they, were, they stopped trusting God, the Ark of the Covenant was carried away by the Philistines, and uh, according to one Samuel chapter four. But the Philistines soon discovered how dangerous it is to live in the presence of a holy God, and so when the Philistines started dying from diseases, they shipped the Ark back to Israel. So now for the first time, the Ark of the Covenant is, not, is going to be retrieved from the house of Abinadab and taken by King David and brought into Jerusalem. So that's likely the setting when Psalm 24 uh, was written. And it ends with the presence of God now coming into the holy city of Jerusalem. Now, the last stanza of Psalm 24 is actually in the form of a dialogue. And to understand what's happening here, it's helpful to uh, really recall an old English tradition. According to ancient custom, when the king of England, when he entered the city of London, uh, through the temple bar, a servant who was uh, a herald would actually stand outside the city wall and he would demand entrance for the king. He'd cry out, open the gate. And then the royal party would actually hear from inside these walls, who is there? And then the herald would answer, the king of England. And then the gates would swing open. And then the king would enter into London. Of course, he would receive this uh, royal welcome into the city. Well, Psalm 24 is similar in some ways to that. The psalm is actually antiphonal. It's a song with a call. And then a response. Now, in David's day, it would have been sung by choirs of Levites and possibly even some soloists. And how it would have worked is this the choir would have been outside of the gates of the city, and they would have lifted up their voices and said this. They would have sang it Lift up your heads, O you gates, be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. And then from inside, of the gated city, there would be a a loud voice crying out, who is this king of glory? And then there would be a response again from the choir answering the question, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Now by this time, the royal choir is actually starting to get a little impatient. And so they repeat the summons, lift up your heads, O you gates, lift them up you ancient doors that the king of glory may come in. And so now the gates begin to slowly open. And as they open during this time, the one inside the gate actually says it again, but not because he's hard of hearing or he's being difficult. He's just really happy about the news. So he says, who is the king of glory? And so then everybody sings it together inside and outside of the city. They say, the Lord Almighty, he is the king of glory. Now, on this first Palm Sunday, Jesus makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem as the rightful king of the city and of the whole earth. And when he does that, he's actually fulfilling Psalm 24. And the the priests are actually at that very moment in the temple reciting Psalm 24. And they miss the connection. It's amazing to think about this. Now, there's a day coming when Jesus will come again to Jerusalem. He will come as the Lord Almighty, mighty in battle. But this time, nobody will miss it. And nobody will miss that connection that this is the king of glory, mighty in battle, who's coming into the city. You know, it's interesting that Jesus actually tells the Jewish religious leaders of that day, that they would not see his face again until they say what it says in Matthew 23, verse 39. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's look at that passage just briefly. Matthew 23, verse 37 through 39. It starts off with Jesus outside of Jerusalem saying this. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I would have gathered you you children together like a hen gathers her, her chicks under her wings. But you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you shall not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, the Jewish religious leaders had rejected Jesus as their rightful king at his first coming. But when he comes again, all the religious leaders at that time in Jerusalem, all of them will recite, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I mean, what a glorious day that will be when that happens. But on this first triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the Jewish religious leaders, they missed it and they rejected Jesus as the Messiah and as the rightful King. You see, it was common really at this time in history, if a ruler or a dignitary, along with his entourage, was approaching a city, there are several typical features of the welcome that they were going to receive. First of all, the welcome was normally extended to the dignitary as he approached the city, the religious and political leaders. They would actually go and meet him outside the city. They would be wearing ornamental uh, outfits. Oftentimes they had uh, white robes on and wreaths and they would meet him outside the city and then they would escort him back into the city. This large body of citizens in attendance would, would laud him and hail him. And when he got back to the city he'd be lauded with speeches on behalf of the city express expressing their great privilege of having this dignitary come to their city. And finally, They would then take him to a local temple in the city. That was the ancient custom of ancient cities. Well, in this case, Jesus Jesus is not met by the city officials. He's not escorted back to the city. The encounter he has with the Pharisees is an outright rejection. The fact that the high priests don't even show up is an affront to him. And the majority of the citizens also really don't show up, adding to the affront. Well, Jesus doesn't get escorted to the temple either, but he goes there himself anyway as the rightful king. And when he comes to his father's house, he finds it not to be a house of prayer, but something really quite different than that, something he could not tolerate. Now, before we actually go to that, I want us to just stop and think for a minute and realize that on this most important day, Jerusalem failed to acknowledge that Jesus was the king. The rightful king of the city, the rightful king of the nation, and the rightful king of the earth. They failed to acknowledge that he had the right to rule their lives. And as a result of that rejection, Jesus pronounces a judgment on that day. Here's the judgment. Luke 19, verse 42, Jesus says this. If you had known on this day, if you had known on this day, even you the things which make for peace. Jesus, Jesus wants them to know this day was not like any other day. This day was a day in which Jerusalem needs to step up and say yes to Jesus as king, but they don't. The majority actually say no. The majority of the city rejects him at this point as their king. Now, the consequences of that rejection really are twofold. The first consequence, number one, is this. There will be even now greater spiritual blindness than they already had because of their rejection. Here's what he says in the next verse, Luke nineteen forty-two. But now... Now they have been hidden from your eyes. Remember, he said, if you had known on this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but they don't, they don't see it. So he goes on and says, but now part of your judgment is they'll be hidden from your eyes. you have even a greater blindness. The second part of the judgment is this, is that there will be a future destruction of this city that rejected him. And that destruction will be devastating. He goes on to say this in verse 43 of Luke 19. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation jesus is basically saying because you've missed a day of your visitation you're going to get a day of visitation you cannot miss and they did in AD 70 when jerusalem was leveled by the powers of rome i want you to notice that jesus then after that goes directly to the temple he should have been escorted there as the dignitary and the honored guest, but he's not But he goes anyways. He goes to the temple and he, when he gets there, he actually finds something that just he cannot tolerate. Let's read it. Luke 19, 43, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. So Jesus finds that his house is not as it should be. It's not a house of prayer. Now, at this point, I want you to uh, think about a question I'd like you to to consider. If his house had been a house of prayer, would the city have recognized him as the rightful king? See, I think the answer to that is yes, they would have. It's amazing how if there is the right prayer, going on with the people of God, how there is a different spiritual atmosphere in the city, a different ability to see what God is communicating. In fact, I think part of the way that I can kind of give some, you know, confirmation to that is that in Luke chapter two, if you remember, this is right after Jesus is born, just eight days after he is born, he's brought to be presented in the temple and also going to be circumcised. Simeon and Anna were the only ones that really knew the importance of that day. And why do they know the importance? Well, if you study Luke chapter two, you find out that they were both people committed to prayer. So when people are devoted to prayer, they seem to be in sync with what God is doing at the time. There seems to be a sense with people devoted to prayer that what is the Holy Spirit saying here? What is he doing here? There's a spiritual sensitivity uh, to the activity of God. When people are devoted to prayer, they usually don't miss most important days. Well, Simeon and Anna didn't miss that most important day in Luke chapter 2. But most everyone else in Jerusalem seemed to miss it. They didn't miss it. When you think about this, the most important day in the galaxies, and Simeon and Anna seem to be the only two that really know what's going on at that time because they're devoted to prayer. There are some very important days coming in our future. A lot of people think, well, you know, this virus is going to come and go and everything's just going to go back to normal. It's very likely that we're going to see much more difficult things coming. And there's going to be some very, very important days that we need to make sure we're in sync with what is God doing? What is God saying? And if we're a people of prayer, then I think we'll be able to be in sync with it. We'll, I think we'll have some understanding of what God is doing. So, again, I just want to encourage you. I want to remind you what last message was about, Psalm 46. Because God... Is our refuge. Remember, this is written to people who are in trouble. God is our refuge, and God is a resident in us. He lives in us, and God sends a river that we can actually get in and be made glad and be strengthened. And God is a reigning king. He's got a purpose where all this is going. That is why we can relax. Well, if you remember last week, I talked about the importance of getting in the river right now, of spending time in the Lord, getting ready for what's coming next. And Psalm 23 verse 2 says the shepherd makes the sheep lie down in green pastures. The Lord makes us lie down in green pastures. What for? The reason the shepherd did it for the sheep was because the shepherd knew what was coming next in the journey, but the sheep didn't. So the shepherd would make them lie down, get rest and feed on the cool green grass. So they'd be ready for what is coming. Well, this is a time for the church to get ready for what's coming next. This is not a time to watch endless Netflix movies and binge out. This is a time to get in the word, get in prayer meetings, check out the week schedule of all the things available on our website and that you can be part of prayer meetings and, and worship times and times to get in the word and devotional times and so forth, times for adventuring. use those times to lie down in green pastures and feed and be ready for what's coming next in the journey now i do believe if the temple had been a house of prayer the city would have responded quite differently to jesus but it wasn't so they didn't prayer in the father's house does change the spiritual environment of a city now let's back up to what jesus did when he got to the temple after he saw the condition of his father's house what does he do next let's read about it matthew 21 verse 12 and jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves now what was so bad about what was happening in the temple to make jesus behave like this i mean you think well these were the money changers in the temple yeah but the money changers when you think about it were actually performing a service people had traveled from all over from different lands and they had to pay temple dues in tyrian coinage and so they needed a convenient way to exchange their foreign currency for tyrian coinage so they could pay their temple dues so was that really that bad that they had money changers there you say well no no gary those were dishonest money changers and i'd say yeah they were probably dishonest but jesus was around dishonest people all the time We don't see him acting like this. So what is going on here that Jesus finds just so intolerable and makes him so angry that he does what we just read about? Well, the key here is not what is taking place as much as it is where it's taking place. What is taking place here? This sin is taking place where God dwells. They were polluting the house of God. And this is apparent, apparently, was the most flagrant evil that Jesus encountered in his ministry. Jesus will not tolerate sin where God dwells. He wouldn't then and he doesn't now. So where does God dwell now? Well, here's what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and chapter 6. Let's look at this. 1 Corinthians 3 16. Do you not know that you are a temple of God? And that the Spirit of God dwells in you. You. First Corinthians 6 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? So if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, then God has taken up residency in you, and you are now a temple of God. God dwells in you. And Jesus feels about sin in your life the same way he felt about sin in the temple that day. Now the people had a choice. They could have cleansed the temple themselves before he got there, but they didn't. So he cleaned it up himself. Now, Again, Jesus is the same today, yesterday, and forever. And he still wants a clean house. And we can clean house ourselves, Repent from our sins, confess these sins to God, ask for forgiveness. Or we can just continue in sin. But if we choose to do that, then understand that Jesus will not let us continue that way. He himself will step in and clean house. And you know what I find interesting about this story? is He, he doesn't seem to be the least bit embarrassed about the big scene he just made. See, the Lord is more concerned about God's house being a clean place than he's concerned about what those watching might think about him. I can think of all the times where some famous pastor or televangelist has been found to be immoral, and the news media you know, exposes him. And I just say, Lord, this is so embarrassing. This is so embarrassing for the church. You know what I've come to learn? I've come to learn that God would rather endure the embarrassment of his church than live in a dirty house. This is actually the second time that Jesus cleansed the temple. The first time he cleansed the temple was in John chapter two at the beginning of his ministry. And I wonder, I wonder how long that cleansing lasted. I wonder how long before, before it all went back to business as usual. I think based on what we know about the Pharisees and their attitude toward Jesus, it didn't take very long for to go back as business as usual. Has that ever happened to you? You ever really kind of brought under conviction by the Holy Spirit to repent of sin and then it doesn't take very long before you go right back to business as usual? Well, it matters to Jesus that the temple is clean. It matters then and it still matters today. Now, Some of you might be thinking, well, you know, I don't have anything real big, real big sin to repent from, Gary. You know, I, I mean, I live a pretty normal, moral life, and, and uh, I don't think I, I really got a, anything to repent from in all of this. Well, those in the temple, I think, on that day would have said the same thing. This is not a big deal. None of this is a big deal. Why is Jesus making such a big deal out of this? Well, I want to explain something to you. <clears throat> I got here a glass, oops, on this side, I got a glass of water. And it's clean water, (sighs) refreshing. Now, if I was to offer you this glass of water before I just took a drink of it, (laughs) you'd probably say, sure, I'll take a drink of it. Now, if I was to do this before I gave it to you, I was to go, okay, hold on a second. (laughs) There. Now take a drink. Would you drink it? I think most of you would say, no way. I'm not drinking that. You just spit in it. I'd say, it was just a little spit. And I and once I mix it up, you can't even see the spit anymore. So take a drink. Most of you say, no thanks. I'm not drinking that defiled glass of water. Well, here's the truth. The truth is, we wouldn't drink out of that glass, but we seem to be surprised that You know, God, you know, really wants a clean house. He really wants a clean vessel to use. You know, though we wouldn't choose to share in this water with all its impurities, we wonder why God's possibly limit his activity in all kinds of ways because of the impurities in our lives. But the truth is, if we allow sin to go unchecked in our lives, if we allow certain sinful, attitudes and habit patterns and actions, we shouldn't be surprised that God might not be able to use us as vessels that he could use if we were clean vessels. You might think, well, it's just a little sin, Gary. It's a little bad attitude. I just got a little critical spirit. I just got a little lust. I just got a little alcohol abuse. I just got a little sin. And I'd say, and now it's just a little spit in that glass. So let me ask you, are you allowing sin to pollute God's house? It matters in these days if you want God to use you. Here's what it says in 2 Timothy 2, verse 20 and 21. It says, now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, He will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. See, the Lord really is looking for clean vessels to use in these days. It is so important that we see the importance of this. Some of you, probably on this Palm Sunday, will order pizza and have it delivered to your house. Now, I want you just to imagine that the pizza man shows up. You open the door and he's got the pizza, holding it in his hand without a box, just the pizza on his bare hand. And the cheese is just kind of oozing down his arm. And he says, here's your pizza. What would you say? I mean, he's just holding it with his hand. You don't know where that hand has been. What would you say? I think the first thing he would say is, excuse me, where is the box? where is my box where is the box I want to know where the box is and I know you've got the pizza but my question is where is the box now this box isn't very expensive in fact I think you can get it for about 20 cents I went by the pizza place and they just said here take it for free so it's about 20 cent box but the, 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 it's, you know, once you put the pizza in there, it has great value to us. But just the box itself is not very valuable. See, it's the, it's the product that gives the vessel its value. The product gives the box its value. And here's the truth I want you to understand. You are a vessel. And if God uses you, don't Don't be, you know, puffed up and think it's a big deal that God uses you. I mean, we're just a 20 cent box. What gives us our value is who is inside us. God himself is living in us. And what does God want? God just wants, he wants a vessel to use for his glory and honor. He just wants a clean vessel and an empty one. And he'll fill it and use it for his glory and honor. So I just want to encourage you, if you want God to use you in your life, present him a clean vessel. It matters uh, to God that you have a clean vessel that he can use. And so I want you to notice what happens next in this story. After cleansing the temple, Matthew 21, verse 14, look at this. It says, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. It's one of those verses easy just to read over and not see the significance of what's just happened here. See, those who were previously not allowed in the temple are now, you know, in fact, they were repelled from the temple. Are they're now drawn in by the presence of Jesus and receive kingdom ministry from Jesus? So here's the truth. The people of God, we're the temple of God today. Oftentimes, the very temple of God repels the people of, you know, people from the actual presence of God by the way that we actually act. But when we become a clean vessel and where God can fill us and use us and Jesus is magnified through us, it's amazing how people are drawn to us and can be healed uh, through the ministry, kingdom ministry of Jesus through us. So let me just ask you this. Are you allowing sin to pollute God's house. Let's read another passage. Mark chapter seven, verse 20 through 23 says this, and he was saying, this is Jesus that which proceeds out of the man. That is what defiles the man for from within out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these things proceed from within. Listen to the last part now. Proceed from within and defile the man. So if you're allowing these sins to go unchecked in your life, unrepented from, unconfessed, there is a sense in which they have a defiling impact on you. Most Christians, you know, don't have much trouble, really, I think, when a preacher's talking about sin, as long as the preacher doesn't say what it is he's talking about well here Jesus says what it is in this passage so I want to just walk through it what I'd like to ask you to do as you're in your home right now is go ahead if you don't already have a piece of paper and a pen or pencil go ahead right now and grab one somewhere and some of you are already ready with that but just go ahead go grab a piece of paper and a pencil or a pen because I want us to walk through this list for a moment together and just let the Lord speak to you about something, anything that you might need to confess or repent from as we enter this Holy Week, as we approach Resurrection—I mean, Crucifixion Friday and Resurrection Sunday. So I'm going to walk through these things, and let's just ask the Spirit of God to just search all of our hearts. Let me pray for that right now. Father, I do ask you, by the power of your Spirit, you'd speak to our hearts and show us anything, Lord, that we need to repent from and confess to your sin today that we can be clean vessels that you can use. So let's just walk through this now. The first thing Jesus talks about is evil thoughts. So let me ask you, do you have any evil thoughts toward anyone, toward your boss, toward another employee, toward a neighbor, toward your spouse, toward a child, toward a parent, toward anyone? If so, repent from it, confess it is sin to God and then commit not to do it anymore how about fornications and adulteries remember Jesus said that if you lust in your heart then you've committed adultery so are you lusting after anyone Are affections intended only for your spouse actually being directed toward anyone else are you viewing pornography are you involved in any type of immoral behavior at all if so just Repent from it. Confess it as sin. Commit not to do it again. How about theft? Have you been stealing at work? Are you taking things that really aren't yours to take for your own? Murders. Do you hate anyone? Is there anyone that you just wish they were dead? Coveting. Are you coveting anyone else's abilities or position or anybody's job? or ministry? Are you coveting someone else's spouse or children? How about the sea? Do you mislead? Do you tell just enough truth to give someone the wrong impression? Do you exaggerate? Do you try to present an image of yourself that is really not true? Slander. Are you slandering anyone? Is there someone that you just, you enjoy speaking ill of them? Are you gossiping? Are you passing on gossip? Are you tearing down another person with your speech? How about pride? Are you concerned more about what other people think about you than what God thinks about you? See, all of these sins, Jesus says, defile us. So those are things that really stir Jesus more than anything, not just because of what they are, but because of where they're taking place. They're taking place in the temple of God. So what should our response be? Well, our response should be a clean house. This is a great day to do it as we are entering into Holy Week. Clean house, repent from compromises uh, that we've allowed in our lives and confess them to God. 1 John 1.9 says this, If we confess our sins he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness you know i can't think of a better time than right now as we go into this easter week than to have a time of cleaning house and that's how we really want to end this service on this palm sunday is taking time to clean house and so i just want to encourage you now As the worship team comes up, they're going to be playing a worship song. And as they do that, I want you to write anything down on the piece of paper that the Lord brings to mind as sin. And then I want you to write 1 John 1, 9. right over it all. And I want you to wad it up as you confess those sins and throw it in the trash and give God a clean house. Have a great holy week. God bless you.